0: Solid as a candy in the sun. I'm a boy that's new and overrun. More like an extraction from a hole. A heart something in almost everyone.
1: Greetings and salutations. My name is Tyler Elenick, and this is Raven's Rule, the podcast that chronicles all things 90s Can Rock. In this episode, I speak with Jordan Zadarajny of Pembroke, Ontario's Blink at the Star. So uh, before we get into Blinker, now you were in a band called Tinker, which uh, with uh, Melissa Oftamar. Um Can you maybe run us through the career of that band and why they ultimately didn't take off? Sure. Um,
2: well, they already, I moved to Montreal in 92 out of high school, and um, Tinker were had been around already and were, if not the best-known local band, then in the top two or three. Um, they were really kind of, you know, they got a lot of coverage in the weeklies and stuff, so when I moved there, I was aware of them already, and um, I went about trying to, put together my own band first but um through some really strange circumstances i ended up joining tinker um they were looking for a guitar player the guitar player had actually died oh, wow. and yeah and um they were continuing um and a friend of theirs had answered a uh, an ad that i put in the mirror looking for musicians and um Ultimately, um, Steve and Melissa, Steve Durand, who was sort of the other main creative creative element in the band, um, they had heard this um, demo cassette that I'd put together um, through their friend who answered my ad, <clears throat> and ultimately they kind of swooped in and took me from her, which was, uh, you know, a little tricky <laughs> um, on a personal level for them. But um, ultimately, I joined Tinker and. That would have been, like, late 93, early, very early 94.
1: And uh, what precipitated the uh, move to Montreal is to say, you're you're from Pembroke, so not Toronto. Why Montreal over Toronto?
2: I think my friends and I had just sort of decided through whatever sort of, um, you know, pop culture we had inhaled by then that Montreal was sort of, well, not only closer, but kind of cooler and just seemed more poetic. And so a couple of us moved there and, you know, we all set about going to university or getting a job doing that kind of stuff. But ultimately, I mean, the reason why I went was like, I thought that that would be a good, as an 18 year old, I thought that would be a good place to start a band. <laughs> over, I don't know. I just sort of, you know, it was more of a romantic notion than anything. Um, and it started, you know, a love affair with that city that has not ended yet. So um yeah, moved to moved to Montreal. And so within a year I was in Tinker and I was only there for six months, but I learned so much and so much happened in that short period of time that it does feel like more of like a two or three year period in my life somehow. We made a couple singles, two seven inch singles with a small label out of New York called Bear Records. We played only a handful of shows with that lineup, and then in the summer of 94, a good friend of theirs um, named Mike Friedman, he was looking to manage bands, and he had also heard this little demo tape that I had done, and he got really excited and offered to sort of front some money to press up some CDs and to try to get a record deal, which seemed perfectly reasonable at the time. (laughs) because other people were doing it and there was this real, you know, all of these um, bands that we felt an affinity for were signing major label deals, you know, like the breeders, et cetera, you know, these bands that maybe five years before would have been considered too far left to center for, for majors to be interested in were now being signed. So Mike heard something in my music that he thought was viable commercially and he was a cool guy and I was a cool guy. So he put up some money (laughs) And we printed we printed CDs and I remember the one the day where everything kind of happened was um, a Lollapalooza I think was happening in um, in Montreal and so we all went together me and Melissa and Steve and Mike and we all went Mike arrived backstage with you know 50 CDs and he was going around to like Billy Corgan's trailer and slipping them in the door and stuff like that <laughs> to try to. You know, to try to get this take, get this thing to take off somehow because we were not signed at the time. And on that same day, Melissa met with Billy Corgan, and who she'd already kind of known. And he said, uh, "Hey, Courtney Love is looking for a bass player. Do you want to play?" And she was like, mm, "I don't think so." <laughs> um, ultimately, she said, "Ultimately, she said yes." And <laughs> I, I guess symbolically. Melissa and I both left Tinker that day, even though officially it might have been another month or two before we both split. Steve carried on, made two really good records as Tinker with a new lineup. But that was sort of the fateful day where we all started to diverge.
1: Oh, interesting. That all kind of happened at one time.
2: It really did, yeah. And um, for me, within four months of that, I basically got an offer from A&M Records to sign out of New York. And um, it all happened really quickly, so um, we signed with them.
1: Now you mentioned uh, signing with uh, with New York. Was Canada at all interested? The Canadian labels, like how was the Canadian music scene? No, then?
2: no, we we play. Uh, they were still kind of playing catch up, and with with what was happening, they were not as adventurous in signing bands as they were in the states. In the states, they seemed to be. You know, they were signing things like uh, Royal Trucks, which somehow someone at a major label thought, well, this is going to be what the, you know, the next big thing that the kids are into. <laughs> Canada, meanwhile, was signing, a, you know, a, just a little bit more radio-friendly acts like Doughboys and stuff. So we went down to Toronto and played a couple shows, and, the, yeah, the reaction was tepid from, um, from the Canadian labels. Mike went down to New York, secured... Um, sort of the indie rock lawyer of the day, Richard Grable, to be our representative. And, you know, within three weeks, we had three or four major labels and one big indie interested and in flying up to Montreal to see us play.
1: And uh, why the decision to go with AM Was it just the best deal or was it the roster or the way they handled artists that you liked?
2: Yeah, it, it came down to them and there was another label that were great that actually ended up putting out my band Filum's first album years later um, called Minty Fresh and Minty Fresh didn't have as much money. Um, they were distributed by Geffen. A and M basically were sort of promising the same level of artistic freedom with some extra cash. And I was attracted to AM. I thought they I, I liked how they broke Soundgarden, for instance. I thought mm-hmm. that was sort of like, oh okay, they're really were patient and kind of did it the right way and built this band up step by step in a cool way. Of course, I was in love with, you know, their, their catalog, you know, like the police and stuff like that. And some of those, um, some of the older uh, crew were still there um, from the old days, although it was largely kind of a new generation of people that were coming in when we were there. But um, uh, they just seemed, really reasonable and super cool and um so we, we went with them
1: so after signing with um something like a&m you've always largely been independent in that you don't have a, a kind of a set number of band members always around you you're always kind of locked away in the studio it seems and you know like the mad scientist did you have to find Ooh. members of to, to play you know to play live or how, how was that working at that time for blinker
2: yeah so the 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 very first album I did record all by myself, mostly as a teenager, you know, it's pretty rough and scrappy, done in my parents' basement. <laughs> so when, when, when Mike and I, you know, put put out the CD independently at first, I, I had to find a band. So I found my old high school friend Colin. He played drums. That made perfect sense. And then, um, for a brief time, we were based out of Ottawa. I was kind of living above my dad's um, violin store in Ottawa. And so Colin, the drummer, moved up to Ottawa, and we went out to the bar one night and met some guy, <laughs> and asked, and he said, hey, I play, I play bass, and, and yeah, we asked him to join the band before we auditioned him, <laughs> which may, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if that was the best idea, but that's how we did things back then, and so we had a, a three-piece lineup that was formed around the album. Yeah, that was pretty solid, and touring was a bigger part of my life, obviously, during the, the, the major label years, for sure.
1: And did they uh, play on the record, or did you play all the instruments on the record?
2: On the first record, I played everything. On the second record, they came down to L.A. with me, and we recorded more or less as a band.
1: So um, talk about a guy from Pembroke in Montreal going down to L.A. for the first time to record a major label album. Was that a bit of a culture shock, or was that something you always kind of being prepared yourself for mentally as a, as a little kid singing in front of the mirror or something like that?
2: I feel the latter. I feel like I had been preparing for this in my head for a very long time. And um, I had gone down to L.A. twice before we recorded that album and um, really felt it sort of amenable to my personality and the way I like to work. And and of course, I found many other people like myself who were doing the same thing. And I felt instantly at home so. By the time we went out to record there, we had already um, become friends and decided to work with Ken Andrews from Failure, and he sort of, you know, he and he and the guys in, in Failure took a liking, they all took a liking to us and sort of put us around socially those first few weeks, and we, you know, we loved it. We were staying at the, at the Oakwoods, which is where all the bands stay when they stay in L.A., and it's sort of a classic hollowed place of you know rock and roll debauchery (laughs) so i i I don't know if it was culture shock because we just took to it like i really (laughs) really loved it um those first few months where um, i think we went down in january 96 and spent like three months recording that record and within two years i was living there
1: you said uh he took you around socially did you meet anybody that uh you were like, wow, I can't believe I'm meeting this dude or this girl. Or
2: well, Yeah, well, you know, we, we, everyone we ran into, you know, there's Anton from uh, from Jonestown Massacre. <laughs> and there's Beck. And there's Blossom. You know, <laughs> there's Alicia Silverstone. Uh, there's Gene Simmons. There's Lemmy that just walked by me. What a smell. You know? <laughs> yeah, everyone was out. Um, so, it, yeah, it was fun. Uh, there's Tom Petty you know, at Largo,
1: hanging <laughs> out. So once the record gets recorded, what is the kind of plan for that album? Is it to, to tackle America or is it because they're an American label or are they because you're Canadian wanting to make you big in Canada first?
2: Yeah, they had no interest in Canada, which pissed me off because uh, we did Bourgeois Kitten. Uh, the label heard the album and decided right away that it wasn't going to be a big priority, but they would put us out on the road for a year and just kind of, you know, wait until... Until I developed a bit as a songwriter. Wait till we gelled a little bit. But they were kind of in it for the long haul, which um, is to their credit. So uh, we just went out on tour and kind of toured relentlessly for, I guess, almost a year. Um, and <clears throat> I wanted to do a video for Much Music because I knew that we could get, you know, at least some medium rotation or something. Mm-hmm but the decision had already been made to really not spend a lot of money on us and i was at this point begging for 5 grand you know which was nothing to make a video back then it was not even nearly enough but and i and i was like i i, I live in canada i'm everyone in the band is canadian we are a canadian band um, we're signed in the states uh, i remember asking the in our guy for money and he was just like ah. <laughs> And I, I, was like, I was like, do you guys kind of see Canada uh, as an equivalent to sort of like Rhode Island? And I remember he just he had a big belly laugh on the phone, and I was like, okay, I got my answer. They don't give a toss about Canada. So I, I couldn't get anything done. Mike Downey, uh, video director, uh, took a liking to us and shot the video for nothing. For, we did a video for Bluish Boy, which I think appeared a few times on The Wedge. But yeah, we did it for nothing.
0: change your attitude, never break your mind.
1: So you mentioned touring pretty hard for a year. Is that all in America, and who were you touring with?
2: Almost all in America. We just had a few, I would say maybe seven or eight shows in Canada. In the States, we were sort of going back and forth um, between just doing our own little tiny shows, um, mo- a lot of touring in the Midwest. Like I remember at one point it felt like we were in Ohio for two weeks. It was really... <laughs> Insane. I was like, "How do they have this many towns that you can go to in, in a small state?" We opened. We played uh, a show or two at the Flaming Lips. We, we toured with this uh, this band that were on MTV for like two minutes called Dink. Dink.
3: <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> it's
2: really awesome. <laughs> so we, we played with all kinds of Pluto from Vancouver we did shows with them on that tour we did a show in new haven with pluto where exactly zero people showed up
1: you're kidding wow
2: yeah and and it was the night the kiss were reuniting in makeup for the first time on the on the mtv awards so we told the bartender um we're like hey just make sure to interrupt us when kiss come on we'll stop <laughs> so we just stopped playing and had a beer with Pluto at the bar and watched Kiss and then went up and jammed for another half an hour or so. so <laughs> yeah. They weren't all great shows.
1: <laughs> so how did the record do in the eyes of the label? I mean, you said that you were even fighting to get video money. Were they happy with the kind of inroads you were making, probably a college radio or stuff like that? Or were they upset with the way the record did, Bourgeois?
2: I think the record kind of did about what they thought it was going to do. And... I remember my A&R guy, and he was correct. He was like, I think you need to kind of go away for a year and really kind of hone your songwriting chops. And at the time, I was like, ah. <laughs> but he was right. He was right. And um, so, so one weird thing happened at, at, the, at the, the last couple weeks of, of Bourgeois Kitten Tour is that we played in New York, and Melissa brought Courtney Love to the show. In New York. And she loved it. And she came, she sort of like went barreling through the crowd and it sort of parted like the Red Sea. I was on stage (laughs) like wrapping cables. And she was like, had a cigarette and she was like, ah, that's like the best show I saw in three years. I want to write songs with you. (laughs) So I was like, oh, great, great. Yeah, yeah, great. So I didn't really, you know, I was flattered, but I didn't really think anything would come of it. But um, the night before the last show of the tour, which was in Kansas City, I think. Um, Melissa called me and said, "Hey, Courtney, Sirius, he wants you to come out and help write some songs. Do you want to come out?" And I was like, "Of course, yeah, I'd love to." So, I flew from Kansas City to LA, and the the band were pissed off. They had to drive <laughs> from Kansas with the gear and unloaded and everything back to Montreal without me helping. So they weren't they weren't too jazzed about that. Yeah,
1: you're jet setting to LA. And <laughs>
2: yeah. Guess what? Guess what, guys. <laughs> <laughs> So, so I flew there, and um, I ended up staying for three months. And that experience, I, I'd say that was kind of the more eye-opening experience, was, was cavorting around town with her um, and writing songs with her and sort of being in inside of fame for a couple months just to see how it worked. Um, and ultimately, I, I loved it. Even more. I loved L.A. even more and decided I came home for Christmas at the end of 97. Um, and I decided that I was going to move to L.A. So I, I moved out there by June of next of next
1: year. Now, let's dive a little bit deeper in those three months. I mean, is that something mm-hmm. like, you know, is she putting you up at a hotel? Is she, are you in a guest house? And then you guys just like tomorrow morning come and jam. Like, how does just the logistics of all that work?
2: Pretty close. They, um, they put me up at the Hyatt on Sunset. Which I stayed at, I'd already stayed there a couple times before, so I felt like a veteran a bit. And um, I didn't get a call for a couple days. I was up there waiting for the phone to ring, and it was like pre-cell phone, so I really had to sit around and wait for the phone to ring (laughs) in the hotel. Um, So I just kind of like wandered around the neighborhood, around West Hollywood, and started buying all kinds of records and CDs. Finally, day three or four, the phone rings. And uh, it was Courtney, and she said, "Come on up. I'm I'm like four houses away from you. Huh. So the Hyatt's right on, sort of crosses this little road called King's Road that goes up the mountain into the hills. And she, she was renting, um, she was renting Roger Taylor from Queen's house.
3: She times. Yeah. Bizarre.
2: Outrageous. And um, so I I walked up the hill with my acoustic guitar in my hand. Huh. And went, th- went through the gates and we, yeah, I think we may have started writing that afternoon.
1: Now, is that just like you guys, like, I'm, I'm not a musician, so I'm just curious how, mm. I mean, now, you know, Corey loves, you know, a worldwide figure at this point. Um, is that just like you guys are having a smoke and a coffee and you're talking about music you love and then all of a sudden she's like all right, I got this guitar idea, and she starts playing something, and then you just start playing along? Is that essentially how it works, or is that way off?
2: Um, it worked two ways. Um, sometimes we would just write with acoustic guitars at home. More often, she likes to write in a band setting. So I kind of joined Hole for a couple months um, in hmm. that we would go to the rehearsal space, And instead of the four of them sort of uh, working on ideas together, there was this interloper named Jordan, who Melissa, of (laughs) course, already knew, but Eric and Patty didn't know me and were, of course, suspicious immediately and kind of didn't want me there at first. Um, But I would say within a week or two, it got really friendly. Um, Eric was calling me up to go see whatever cool band was playing at night and, um, and Patty and I went to the movies on occasion. So they they ended up liking me, and it, and it got to be kind of comfortable. So we would show up at this big rehearsal space, and typically, yeah, they would sometimes have a riff that, that was sort of like a, just a partially developed idea. And then they would have a blank spot, and Courtney would say, well, this is – can you write something for this part? Hmm. So there was that, and, and she, all the while she was sitting – with a legal pad on a, on a chair Writing out lyrics And sort of riffing out melodies As the band was jamming So out of that process came <clears throat> The one song that I that I have, have Co-writing credit on the album um, A song called Reasons to be Beautiful um, That came out of that Although we did write a few Just acoustic together But they didn't really go anywhere I remember she wanted to write Something for a movie Oh no 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 Stevie Nicks had asked her to write a song hmm. for a solo album, so we tried to write something that sounded like Stevie would sing it, and we submitted like a very rough demo, but she didn't use it.
1: Now, based on um, the, the the Blinker, the Lo-Fi basement recordings, I hear a lot of Nirvana influence in that. I don't know if that's intentional or not, but if it was, was it ever dawning on you that this is, you know, his widow, that you're now? you know, partnering up with. And it just seemed like an odd thing about four years earlier. You're probably listening to this band and seeing her on MTV awards. And now you're. Absolutely. That,
2: that was totally going through my head. It was like, um, mind, hit my last year of high school. So that was culturally enormous for me and all of my um, peers. And, um, and then of course the death of Kurt was only three or four years before, and that was such a, I don't know, it was, it was a really big moment. I feel it sort of took the wind out of the sails of the music for a few years and you know, within three or four years um, a sort of new generation of sort of the more commercially oriented guitar, grunge rock sort of had started <clears throat> to seep in and it didn't really share the same spirit with the You know, the the sort of glut of great albums that came out between, like, 90 and 94, you know?
3: Yeah, epic, yeah, for sure.
2: Yeah, there were so many great records. And um, sure, like, uh, if you listen to the first Blink or the Star album, to me, it's like every song I can tell you the contemporary influence. (laughs) That was, you know, it was very influenced by what was happening then, for sure. It was like Pavement, Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins bc boys urge overkill lemonheads the cure so that that, that's what i hear when i listen to that first record is just sort of the some parts of all of those influences that were um pretty obvious and yeah it, it it dawned on me like whoa i'm i'm sort of just stepping into rock history here for a minute.
1: So, were you happy with the final record, the celebrity skin record? Did you hear it? and did you did you like it, noting that you only got one of your kind of pieces on there?
2: I did like it. And um, the record took on, I, I would say Billy Billy Corgan's influence was very, very important. and he came in after I had left. He was mm. the next he was the next one in. <laughs> and and he, you know, he kind of had the confidence and the experience and the vision to see what kind of record this could be. And, um, and then the next step was Michael Beinhorn, who, you know, is maybe my favorite producer of all time. And he came in and was really, really able to, I feel, make a record that is at once like really ballsy and brave sounding, but also has, you know, um, an attractive, not cloying commercial sheen that, Certainly now, like I remember at the time some people were like, oh, it's a little slick, but certainly listening to it now, you know, without the context of being in 1997 or whatever, it sounds great. It sounds really good and punchy, and um, I think Billy and Michael Beinhorn were really important in sort of just seeing what kind of record it could be and then executing it.
1: So spending um, three months with, you know, Hole, essentially, um, did you take anything away from that? Did, did, it, did it work? Did you become better yourself? I think
2: I must have because once I got settled in L.A., you know, six months down the road from there, I feel my songwriting had Improved vastly, and I feel like that was the experience that I needed to sort of um, really deliver a good record when I needed to deliver it, which was that third record. Um, there, there was also one other interesting experience that happened in that time, right before I moved to L.A. There was um, I, I signed a publishing deal with Rondor in um, in L.A. and they did this thing where they partnered up with another publishing company and sent about 10 writers from each of the rosters to France, to Miles Copeland's castle. And then there were another 10, yeah, then there were another 10 artists that were managed by Miles Copeland. So he would house all of these rock and rollers for free, but he would get first dibs on these songs that were being written. Huh. And it was in this like 17th century castle in the south. South of France, and I'm I, I was the youngest person by like eight years. <laughs> Carol King was there, like Nancy Wilson, Colin James, um, Brad Roberts, uh, Vinnie Coliuda, John Parrish. It was a really odd. That I learned a lot about writing on that experience. It was like ten days. It was amazing, and they have a very democratic attitude towards like. Um, who gets what room, because they're not all equal. You're in this, you know, ancient castle. And unbeknownst to us, the rule is first one off the bus gets first choice of rooms. Huh. And I got off the bus first, and they were like, what room do you want? And I was like, well, what's what's the best room? They're like, "Miles's mom's room is the best, and she goes to England shopping during this little festival. Uh, so I had this, like, grand but very damp like stone bedroom with with a bed that was like as hard as rocks, but it was like five feet off the ground. It was I can I can actually still smell it. And he had a <laughs> cellar. He had a cellar in the pigeon coop that was or the hawk dome or whatever it was that um, just stocked with like local wine. And at night we you know the bad boys would go down there and listen to mixtapes and drink all of Miles' wonderful local wine.
1: And how does that work? I mean, you just, uh, everybody eats at the same time, kind of like a university dorm
3: or I,
2: there was a grant. No, there was a bit, there was two meals a day, breakfast, which everyone attended because they were starving. <laughs> and then lunch was just walk into the old ancient French kitchen and grab what you want. There's a bunch of stuff. And then there would be a big, beautiful dinner every night. And at the dinner, we would play the songs that we wrote during the day, huh. uh, and because we would record, they had little demo stations set up throughout the castle, and we would record. We'd have three hours to record the song. We would go in groups of three, and then play the songs. And Miles, you know, when he heard something that he liked, his ears would perk up, and he would say, "Who wrote that? Who wrote that?" And yeah, it was it was a really really good experience for me. So by the time I got to L. A. in June of '98. I had wider ears. I was also hanging out with some people that had really wonderful tastes. They were sort of steering me away from sort of the grunge rock of the day and turning me on to, you know, the Surf's Up album by the Beach Boys and really getting into Hunky Dory by Bowie. Um, and so I started informing my writing, which started the process for August Everywhere.
1: Now, speaking of August Everywhere, uh... Another big part of that record is Brad Laner from Medicine. How did you uh, become friends with him and became so? In- and how did you become so integral in- into the record?
2: Yeah, um, I, I got. Uh, I was really lucky and really set up when I got to LA. Um, I went out a few weeks before to find an apartment, and um, uh, Ken Andrews took me out. We went out for beers, and there was this guy named Matt Marshall. Matt had worked at uh, or was an A&R guy at Zoo who had signed, Matt signed Tool. And um, Matt had a um, guest house available for rent. So that was solved 20 minutes off the airplane on that trip. And I could just, I could just hang out. So I had this idyllic place in Laurel Canyon. Um, Matt had also signed this Tool sort of side spin off project called LUSK, L-U-S-K. Now, this record, it came out in 97, it was called Free Mars, was the record that influenced August Everywhere more than anything else. And it was um, uh, Chris Pittman, um, Paul DeMore of Tool, Brad Laner, and Greg Edwards from Failure were sort of the four main guys. Um, and I remember the night or a few nights after I moved into the guest house, Matt threw a party for me, and Literally everyone who became an important part of August Everywhere was at this party. <laughs> so that's where I met Chris Pittman. That's where I met Brad Laner. And so Brad and I became fast friends and regular songwriting partners. We would get together every Saturday afternoon and um, write and record a demo at his place, uh, go out for lunch and listen to records and record more songs. So Brad has a musical brain like no other and hears things in a way that other people don't hear he comes at it from a completely different angle so i was just completely fascinated with his brain and um he's a really really sweet sweet guy as well
1: and for the people who don't know medicine maybe by name they've definitely seen the crow i'd imagine and medicine is one of the featured bands in that film with with beth on vocals so uh, yeah people can look for that next time and that's that's brad laner's medicine um did you ever ask him about uh, appearing in the movie
2: I think he volunteered a few stories that I kind of don't forget, but the, the the stories that I remember that Brad told me were um, were of working in the in San Fernando Valley as a teenager at uh, you know like a really cool record store, and um, he told me that um, who's the guy that plays George Jefferson? Um, Sherman Helmsley is. That?
1: Sherman Helmsley, yeah, that's right. Yeah,
2: yeah, he would he would come in, and he was the biggest frog fan in the world no way yeah like gentle giant was his favorite band and i uh i told that story to someone recently and they're like come on there's no way i was like no i know it's true because brad's memory is insane it's really it's really insane and i looked it up online and someone was like I heard from someone, from someone, from someone that Sherman Helmsley was a big prog fan and everyone was like, no way, no way, no way, that can't be true. But I know it to be true. You know, so those are the kind of stories I remember from Brad more.
1: <laughs> so did you have any kind of apprehension writing so close with somebody? Because you had done the first two records kind of on your own. Did, was it refreshing to have somebody like Brad and Chris in there kind of giving you, feeding off of them?
2: Yeah, it was. I, I really loved writing with those guys. Um, Chris brought a knowledge of chords with him and, and, and a knowledge of how to make transitions work really dramatically. So he and I sat down at his little piano in the valley and wrote Below the Sliding Doors hmm. in an afternoon. Um, we had a totally different bridge, which sounded more like it, like a, it, it all of a sudden went into a march that sounded like something off of The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. And I remember he, he called me up a couple days later. He's like, ah, yeah, that bridge isn't working uh, Can you drive down here? Uh, I got something new. And he played the chords for that beautiful bridge where it goes to the F-sharp minor over the A, and, um, or A over F-sharp, I'm not sure. And I, I think I learned more about that and that seeing that one chord happen. Huh. And how to get how to get out of that corner, that songwriting corner that we've sort of painted ourselves into. He just pulled this mo this chord out that only it could have worked, only that chord, and he found it. And 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 Brad is just absolutely fearless with trying anything, and and of just like moving forward quickly, and of, and of letting accidents happen, of well, forcing accidents to happen, which is something I've royally kind of taken with me over the years. Is Allowing the space for mistakes to happen in your process that surprise you. So, that, so the great thing about writing with all these new people was that they surprised me. And I, and I got, I was able to sort of break out of my, you know, my early habits that I had formed.
0: The money's gone The is your only throne The last walk of the garden like to think you know no shame Select a worthy heir to your name and this one, it's end of game Woo! on and i icy... see
1: Um, the other two members of the band kind of um, how do they kind of react to they're probably is they still up in Canada when you're writing this record with people like Brad are they wanting to be part of the writing process or?
2: right so both Colin and Petter the Petter Jacobson the first bass player they left the band after the um, Bushwick kitten tour so I was really on my own hmm. uh, I asked my friend my old high school friend Pete Forlander to join the band Um, But he only came down when it was time to play bass on the album. So I was kind of out there in L.A. as the sole member of Blink of the Star, accumulating influences, meeting people, writing with people, demoing up a storm. I think I may have demoed maybe 85 songs for that album. Wow. And then failure broke up. So Kelly Scott, who was my pal, um, joined up and he became a big part of the process um, as well, certainly. He was there in the beginning when we were demoing this stuff. So by the time we got into the studio, a lot of the drum parts had already been worked out ahead of time.
1: So is that like the label kind of funding you staying there in LA, or is that coming out of your own pocket? Like the label saying this is part of the part of the pre-production and funding all that? Like you're just like your general logistics of staying someplace, eating, drinking?
2: Well, my living expenses I uh, I had to cover myself, but I was living off of advances at this Mm. time. So you'd get a big chunk, 65% of it would be gone immediately, and then then you have a few thousand bucks to sort of float for six months or a year. Oh, wow. So a- A&M were, were somehow really still dedicated to the process because we were spending money in pre-production. And once we had... Um, You know, sort of wheedled the song list down to maybe 14 songs and chosen again Ken to produce, um, which took a lot of convincing on my part because they they didn't really want Ken to produce. And I had to fight for that because I really believe that Ken and I kind of grew together in the period between Bourgeois Kitten and August Everywhere. And um, he was giving me a lot of pre-production advice while I was writing the songs. That was very, very helpful. Um, So it was very natural that he became the producer for the record.
3: And then why
1: the split between A&M and then ultimately signing with DreamWorks?
2: Right. So A&M, basically, they green-lighted the record and said, go ahead. So we finished the record, and we are mixing the record, and we start hearing these rumors that um, that the labels are all going to amalgamate into one big universal label, and that Seagram's is buying the whole lot of them, And this is going to be bad for the smaller bands. So we knew this was coming down. Um, We knew this was going to happen, even though it wasn't announced. So we were trying to mix the album as quickly as possible. Now, A&M was cutting off funding to other bands that were, you know, baby bands that were small like us. And I felt like we were going to get canceled and going to get dropped and that I would lose this beautiful, album forever if I didn't try something, a Hail Mary. So I called David Anderley one night. Now, David Anderle worked, uh, he had signed the Beach Boys in 1970, he was a good friend with uh, Brian Wilson, and ultimately he ended up at a and Records, where he was sort of seen as like, you know, part of the old guard, real artist-friendly, you know, the guy that did drugs with his artists, you know, that kind of guy. <laughs> and... We, I, I, I hung out with him a couple times, and he, he sensed that I was uh, a true blue artist, and 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 treated me really nicely, and and I answered every question I had about the about the Beach Boys patiently. <laughs> so I, during this period of mixing, where I felt like we were going to, because all these other bands were getting their budgets pulled, and I thought, well, it's only a matter of time before we do. I called David, and I basically just offered up only an emotional plea. I had nothing to bargain with, but basically begged him to keep the money flowing to finish this record. Somehow it happened. And um, there, there's guys in some of the other bands that were the money stop. They're still baffled as to why if we kind of got to keep going. So then the real good luck happened for me, which was in this sort of a weird readjusting period where uh, many of the people that I worked with at a and were getting fired and uh, some were staying and being folded into this big universal music group label headed by Jimmy Iovine. So I had a new a person and what had happened in the few weeks that were, where there was sort of a lull, we finished mixing the record. We had a finished record. Ken called me and said, hey – there's a young A&R guy at DreamWorks, and I played him the record. He's a friend of mine, and he loves it. Uh, he wants to meet with you. I said, okay. So we um, he was paranoid. We, we, had, we went as far north in the San Fernando Valley as you can go to the <laughs> least least fashionable restaurant where there was no chance of any – other label person seeing him. <laughs> nice
0: and covert, <laughs> nicely done. <laughs> uh,
2: yeah, I thought the paranoia was absolutely over the top, but I loved it. <laughs> and he said, hey, um, I'm from DreamWorks. i played this, this for the head of the label, Lenny Warnaker Again, uh, an old Warner Brothers, Beach Boys guy from the 70s. He loves it. Um, and he wants to know if there's a chance that we can get you, but we understand you're still signed to a m Universal, we want to sign you. Is there anything you can do to perhaps get dropped? So this is, you know, this is in a kind of a shifty legal zone right now. So the a person for, for uh, Universal called me up and said, hey, Jimmy likes your record, but he doesn't hear a single. Do you have anything else to play? And of course, I'd been writing new songs, but there was this new DreamWorks thing in the air. So I said no. The next day I was dropped. I called DreamWorks. They sent a contract over for me to sign. And um, it was basically the the same contract I would have gotten with a very small bidding war. They were really generous. And all of a sudden I was in good shape again. And we recorded two more songs, two that I had written in the interval, Um, pretty pictures and there's nowhere you can hide and then we had a release date and we were ready to go
3: I can't believe they
1: didn't hear a single on the record I mean that thing is loaded almost front to back with singles in my eyes or my ears, that's crazy
2: Yeah, I think the the definition of commercial became tighter Mm. once it became this sort of mega label Um, they really only wanted guaranteed hits at that point
1: Another thing you um, didn't mention that I know there's a great story behind is the artwork. Can you tell me how you got uh, Pink Floyd's artist involved in your record and the story of picking him up from the airport and and all that? Uh,
2: So um, once I was on DreamWorks, I I went there and met everyone and I loved everyone that worked there. And the art person was a woman named uh, Frances Pennington. And um, we had this great art dinner and... She said, uh, do you know who Storm Thorgerson is? I said, yeah, of course. She goes, what do you think about us giving him a call? <laughs> it, 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 this just seems like the kind of, you know, wide-screen rock album that he would really excel at. And at that point, you know, he'd kind of, I wouldn't say fallen out of fashion, but he wasn't, you know, he wasn't pumping out the, the big album covers like he had been 15 or 20 years before. And she called him up, and he's like on a crackly line from England, and he was like, are you calling to see if I'm still alive? <laughs> well, I am. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So we asked him to draw us up some ideas. He set like five or six ideas over, like drawn in pencil crayon. And uh, one we almost went with, it was really interesting, it was like five rivers flowing into a whirlpool in the middle and, like, mermaids floating into the middle. Like, the the rivers are flowing in instead of out into this central whirlpool and these sort of, like, mermaids floating into the middle whirlpool. But uh, in there, he also had this melting ice swan idea. We thought that that was sort of original and sort of iconic-looking. We went with that. Um, So, yeah... um, he flew into LA and said, "Meet me at the Genghis Cohen restaurant." So I met him there. He was having dinner with Bob Ezrin and his wife.
3: Oh wow. It's
2: amazing. Yeah. And um, so I had dessert with Bob, his wife, and uh, Storm. And then Storm and I drove out to Death Valley, which is about a three and a half hour drive. And we had never met each other. We'd spoken a few times on the phone. But we drove out and we were real chatty for about two hours. And then once we really got out into the desert, we both kind of just fell silent for the remaining hour and a half, which seemed appropriate given the landscape we were inhaling at the time. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's like Mars out there. And um, we had a, you know, for an album cover sheet, a big crew, you know, there was like 10 people, seven seven, eight or 10 people. And these two volunteers came out from San Francisco that were big Storm fans, this couple. And um, they had to hire a. Uh, apparently, they could only find one expert ice sculptor in all of Los Angeles County. They found this guy, who also claimed he grew up with Brian Wilson, which was interesting, but not on a musical level. They were like, you know, basketball buddies or something, <laughs> skateboarding or something. Um, so he came out with a huge trans a refrigerated transport truck in the hottest place in america (laughs) uh running 24 hours a day at maximum coolness and he had i think six or seven ice swans so when we went out to shoot the next day you know we we really had to get we, we we had to get it right one of those six times so Storm would take one, we would take one ice swan out. Storm would choose a low. he would choose a local, I think the night before he drove around and picked some locales. And then there were a couple random ones. And um, so he would set it up and then set up his camera and take shots for about 15 minutes. And then the swan would inevitably begin to melt. At that point, we would take, the, me and the crew, we would take out sledgehammers and destroy it. And he would take pictures of that. And hmm. somewhere, I wish I wish I had those pictures because we were having fun. That was It was really fun. And uh, I think it was the last setup where he got that shot for the album cover.
1: Now, with um, you know a really big recording budget, I think I've, I've heard of it's been over $200,000 or something to record that record, and then you got Storm doing the artwork. Mm-hmm. What are the expectations from DreamWork? I mean, are they sinking a bunch more money into videos now? I and mean, what, what is the kind of plan to to recoup that money and to, and to really put this record in people's hands yeah
2: well unlike AM, and dreamworks really believed in this record and they thought it it had near mass appeal um so there was the first discussion was are we going to go to pop radio or alternative rock radio and it really was a, a, a difficult decision because if you remember at that time alternative rock radio had gotten really heavy as in as in rap rock heavy.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: And there was not, it was a year or two before Coldplay. And so there was not a lot of um, dreamy, emotional music on the alternative airwaves. It really sort of um, ossified into this very sort of masculine energy, um, simplified hard rock formula um, with with rap rock mixed in. So it was like, well, ultimately it's still is a little left to center, so we'll go with alternative radio. Um, And ultimately they did hit a brick wall with a lot of stations because they thought this this is not the song to gamble on. Um, Coldplay became the, the, the soft option two years later with a little more digestible single. Um, I feel the record might've done better in that environment after Coldplay kind of stepped in. So, the success of the record was pretty regional. We did really well in places like Detroit, DC, Los Angeles. And then it was, you know, kind of kind of tricky. We were out there on tour. There was no way of me feeling that the record was kind of beloved by a small hardcore audience. You know, there was no sort of internet feedback that we were getting. It was sort of like, ah, this is this is hard work touring this record. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was kind of ready to move on pretty quickly, actually. I wanted to make another record, and um, Dreamers were like, no, I'll keep touring, and I was like, ugh, really?
1: What was the uh, reaction Canada to the record?
2: Well, I wasn't here, so I only hear about it now where, um, you know, people tell me that it was kind of a big deal for them and their, their little gang or whatever, and I've heard that a lot, so...
1: But I guess, did you um, do a lot of press here? Did you do, like, Chart Magazine, Much Music? Did you tour a lot here on the record?
2: We did very little touring. Uh, press was all done in one day. Um, oh, wow. Flew, yeah, flew in from L.A., met the A&R guy at the airport. We went around and did all the press in Toronto. It was all set up in one day, and then I went down to New York and did the same. And then, um, and then we started touring.
1: So with the '90s ending, did you see a kind of change from the beginning of the decade when you that that first 19-year-old kid moved to Montreal and to now in '99? Did you how did you see the music industry kind of evolve through that time?
2: Yeah, well, like I said, there, there, there was some new strains happening. There was, um, you know, there was like this things like the Chemical Brothers and, and Prodigy were sort of breaking through, so that was refreshing, and at the same time a little bit more of an honest indie strain was sort of slipping back through. So Flaming Lips got really big all of a sudden. Uh, Modest Mouths. And I sort of was like, well, maybe there's a way out of this. (laughs) This hard (laughs) rock. (laughs) This, Yeah. But ultimately, like DreamWorks were like, they wanted me to do another. They loved August Everywhere so much that they were like, do another one like that. It's only a matter of time. Huh. And I, I was the one that was kind of like, well, I want to try something different. Like, I want to maybe rock it up a little bit more. I feel that they were really patient and, and were ready to go the long haul. Ultimately, you know, the, the label ended up folding. I got out of my deal about a year before things kind of went south with the label. So I was able to get a little bit of leftover cash. And with that, I was able to, to start my own studio up here. So it all kind of worked out really well with DreamWorks. I mean, they were really generous. Um, as much as the album wasn't a huge success, I know it was a priority, and I know they spent a million in promotion on it. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, the video alone was 110000 Jeez. And um, so, you know, ultimately, when an artist and a, and a label part ways, someone has the better end of the deal. If, if, if the artist ended up selling a lot of records, Generally, the label got the better of it. In my case, although I would have liked to have sold more records, I really did get a good shake, you know, with those guys. And ultimately, that record, the 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 promotion that they put into that record, ultimately sort of gave me a reputation on which to build certainly a production career. And when I started taking um, making my own records seriously again, which was for almost another ten years there was a little cushion of fandom there waiting for a new record, which was really nice and unexpected for me. I kind of thought I'd just be starting over, but, um, uh, I'm, I'm really grateful for everything that DreamWorks did for me on that record.
1: Um, any kind of idea of ever doing like a, like an anniversary tour for like an August and everywhere or something like that, or where you go out and play all these old songs and some of your new stuff as well?
2: Well, we, we did, um, a handful of shows last September, um, With some really eager, good good friends of mine who, uh, as they tell me, you know, that record meant a lot to them in in 99 when it came out. So my friend Tom Darcy put together uh, a band for me in Toronto. And, you know, his idea was to really go heavy on August Everywhere material. And, of course, you know, I've put out four or five records in the last five years. So I'm really eager to play the new stuff. So... (laughs) We struck a compromise. I think we ended up doing four or five songs from that record and then a bunch of new stuff. Um, but it was really fun. I, so I guess that's as close to the 20th anniversary right. celebrations as we got. But um, it was good enough for me. It was, it was felt really good to go out and play those songs, old and new. Um, and these guys were really, really good and sensitive to the material. And um, they nailed it.
1: Now uh, we'll wrap this up soon, but um, I was doing a little bit of research and I saw another name popped up that I'm curious, and then the connection—the um, late Chris Cornell—you also did some work with. What is the the connection there?
2: So Mike Friedman, he was the he was my my early manager and the guy who got me, you know, in in the door with with major labels and stuff. We parted ways around '97, and we didn't speak for a few years. It was pretty pretty rough for a couple of years. Um, in 2003, we connected again in Los Angeles and we started to become friends again. And he was, by the end of that decade of the, of the zeros, he was getting songs into film. He was a film music supervisor uh, for Hollywood, Hollywood movies and had gotten a few things of mine into some bigger movies, which was like some very welcome cash when there were, you know, wasn't a lot of income from my, my own music happening.
1: Oh, what movies did you, uh, did you make the soundtrack to?
2: Um, there's one called, um, what's it called? Uh, Catch and Release, which has like Foo Fighters and a couple other things. There's a a song that, uh, Lindsay Buckingham produced that's on that record. Mike had, um, uh, become friends with Chris and Chris and Mike, Mike, you know, love, worship Soundgarden and just thought Chris was the best guy in the world. And, um, and Chris, of course, you know, uh, struck up a friendship with Mike and, and, um. I remember he brought over the Timbaland album to Mike's place to play it for him, huh. uh, the album that Timbaland had produced for Chris Cornell, which is a sort of controversial sort of pop album. And um, <laughs> Mike is sitting there with Chris listening to it, and he's kind of not liking it, and uh, he's scared. <laughs> he's sitting there with Chris himself. He's like, what am I going to say? So he <laughs> listens to the album patiently, and he picks out two songs. He goes, you know, these two songs are really good. I just wish they would have been... <laughs> produced in a more rock way, he's like, you know, I, I might be able to get one of these songs in a movie, but you might have to, like, re-record it, and he was like, oh, I'm up for that, so Mike uh, thought of me, and sent me the song, but then he also sent me just the vocals, and, oh, wow. that and was yeah, cool here. Yeah. yeah, and the beats per minute, so I did a demo, like a rock demo of the song Never Far Away. And send it back to Mike. He played it for Chris, and Chris was like, "Very, very cool. Let's let's do it." So I flew to L.A. Chris paid for the session. I produced it, hired the engineer and the studio and the musicians, and we did this rock version of the song, his song "Never Far Away," that only right now exists on a really, really badly compressed YouTube video. It's in mono even too. It's really, it really <laughs> sounds bad, and I hope one day um, his estate, um, you know, gets around to um, Uh, at least posting a really nice version of it because it it does sound really good. We, We recorded it to tape and everything.
1: Buckingham connection
2: after August Everywhere was finished I went out for lunch with the head of DreamWorks uh, Lenny Werniker and he asked me out of anyone that I know is there anyone that I know that could help you make this next blink of the star record and in my head I was thinking Prince or Lindsay Buckingham they were <laughs> both sort of my biggest heroes I just pictured Prince bailing somehow in my head you know um, <laughs> so I said Lindsay Buckingham so he said great. I haven't I haven't seen Lindsay since I moved over to Dreamworks from Warner Brothers. I'll I'll give him a call on Monday. So on Monday Lenny calls me and he goes, "Guess who I ran into at the restaurant on Saturday night?" <laughs> Lindsay. And we talked about you and he's coming over to the offices today and I'll let you know how it goes. So he played Lindsay a couple things of mine and Lindsay really liked it and we set up a session and we recorded two songs. At great expense. I mean, we spent like two weeks in the village. Lindsay likes to work slowly and, uh, and methodically. So we really took our time. And um, I invited Brad Laner along to play bass because he's a fabulous bass player. And Brad and I both love Tusk, you know, more than anything. So I had to have Brad there. And um, so uh, one of those two songs was just sort of left over. And Mike needed a song for this catch and release soundtrack and, and happily – uh, one of those Lindsay songs actually came out. So that's how that happened.
1: Now, when you're palling around with Lindsay Buckingham and Chris Cornell, and <laughs> you know, is that uh, ever just like, like the same like that Courtney loves situation? where you? we just check yourself and say, fuck, what is going on in this life?
2: I, only later. Like by that time, it was just fun. And, <laughs> you, you know, I really, I, I, I just felt at home home with you know how these guys made records and how they kind of lived their lives and um i was in a different financial bracket but um you know we're we're just musicians and um if you get along on a musical level everything's cool so uh i i learned a lot from both of them it was really you know both were excellent experiences but very very comfortable by then
1: is there anything specific that you would have learned? Like you learned, um, you said you saw immediate difference after working with Courtney and Love Hole. Did you see a difference working with Lindsay and Chris, even in those short times?
2: I think by the time I got to Chris, which was 2009, I'd been producing records then for about 10 years. So I already kind of had a certain amount of confidence. and I certainly had like my own methodology. And I remember on the flight down there, I had my first little flash of like, a nervous feeling. I'm like, oh my God, this is Chris from Soundgarden. But then I remember saying to myself also, it's just going to be like any other vocal session. Um, I'm going to say the same things to the artist that I would say on the other side of the glass. And so it was, it really was. And, and, and he, before going in to sing, to do the vocals on that song, he said to me, he's like, hey man, I love singing. So I'm not finished until you're happy. So you hmm. can just make me do it over and over again. And I'm happy to do it till you're happy. So it really set, you know, set me at ease right away. And Lindsay, you know, when I first met Lindsay it was in like 2000, I really felt that like I was meeting like an older version, <laughs> like a rich older version. of myself. <laughs> <that. laughs> and he may have seen a, uh, a younger version of himself in me. I don't know, but, we got along like really well. And, um, I'd already listened and read about his methods so much that, um, you know, when it came time to do, uh, very speed production tr- tricks, you know, where you slow the tape machine down or speed it up to get a certain timbre on the guitar or, or percussion, you know, I, I, I already knew he was going to do that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'll get you on on this question. Um, I have a, a playlist on Apple and Spotify of 90s Can Rock, and I'm looking to get uh, two Blink of the Stars singles and one deep cut from your 90s material to, uh, to go on the playlist. How would you like to be represented?
2: Oh, great. Well, the two singles from August Everywhere, I thought, turned out pretty well. So we'll say Below the Sliding Doors and Pretty Pictures. For the deep cut, let's say strange as they say, it's sort of um, uh, on that tour, we ended up doing a very, very extended jam of that one. um, And it's kind of, uh, I know fans really dig that tune. So let's go with, let's go with that one.
1: Excellent choices. However, I am curious, you didn't pick anything off your first two records. I'm curious, uh, what are your thoughts on them looking back now?
2: I'd see them as sort of um, as stepping stones to getting to August everywhere, which I feel is like, my first, like, successfully completed vision of something where, hmm. where it kind of turned, it, turned out as well as I wanted it to turn out, whereas I, I think the first one is me sloshing about in the basement. The second album, Bourgeois Kitten, is me in a, in a studio for a sustained amount of time with a producer for the first time, but you know what they say about these second albums, you know, you have your whole life to write your first album, and 12 months to write the second one. I mean, I was writing stuff on the plane on the way down just to get 11 <laughs> or 12 songs. We, we really didn't have enough songs to choose from. So I feel the songwriting uh, is not as polished as it is on August Everywhere, where, again, I had another couple years to accumulate material, um, also grow, grow up a little bit, and to rub shoulders with really, really talented people that, that taught me a lot about songwriting and production.
1: So excellent choices, sir, and uh, I'll add those to the playlist. And thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. It's been great.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure,
1: Tyler. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Raven Drool. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can do so in a variety of ways. First, you can go to patreon.com slash become a patron, get access to deleted audio, get advanced notes of the guests, and get a chance to submit questions to those guests for an exclusive Patreon Q&A. Visit Redbubble.com, search Rave Drool, and you can buy various goods with the Raven podcast logo on it. Follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to this. And if you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, please give us a 5-star rating and review. If you're looking for more Notties rock content, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. And lastly, if you're looking for music, we have an official playlist on Apple and Spotify. Currently, it's curated by myself for tracks that I've selected, but as you heard during today's episode, eventually it'll be curated by the guests themselves. Until next time, friends, take care.